Greetings, Tunes podcast listeners. It's your host, Matt Munoz, back with another mind-bending episode of the Tunes podcast, brought to you by Bakotopia.com. On this episode 62, we welcome a true legend of Latin alternative rock music, the one and only Ceci Bastida, a familiar voice and face to fans of early Latin rock, rock en español, if you prefer, as keyboardist and vocalist to Tijuana, Mexico, ska punk music legends Tijuana No, Bastida is ready to show off her new solo prowess to the world. Indiscriminate music fans should already know Bastida's place in the genre's history, singing lead on two of Tijuana no signature tunes Pobre de Ti and a cover of The Clash's Spanish Bomb. She also traveled the globe touring with critically acclaimed artist and friend Julieta Venegas, who's also been featured on the Baker Tunes podcast. Now solo, Bastida is preparing to make her own waves in 2010 with a new full-length release coming in March. Picotopia spent some time with Bastida via telephone from her LA residence on December 10, 2009, just a few hours before her final show of 09 at East LA's Eastside Love Club to talk history, her future, and capricious American music fans. So pop up in a cold brew and find out just how cool Ceci Bastida really is off stage. Starting with my first question about being considered the first lady of rock and espanol. I don't know. I, I've never thought of myself as that, honestly. And, I, and I'm not trying to be like all humble or anything. You know, I started when I was very young and I think I wasn't aware of a lot of things. I, I was kind of just playing because I wanted to and, and I was kind of unaware of like, you know, promoters or, you know, the business aspect of the whole thing. So, or the, you know, publicity and, and stuff like that. So, you know, to me, I was just playing, and, and I was excited that we had a record out, and, you know, the people came to the show. So, so that was pretty cool for me. So, <laughs> I, don't, I mean, now that I see things um, and I listen to, to some of the Tijuana No stuff, I'm like, wow, that was in 1991, or that was yeah. it seems like so long ago. Yeah, it does, it does seem like a long time ago, but yet a lot of that music is so timeless, uh, especially because there's people who are still barely discovering that whole scene. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's the interesting thing. I feel like after so many years, even though I, I don't do any of the ska stuff anymore, and um, and I, I wouldn't want to do it right now anymore, but I see that there's still bands, you know, doing it and still excited about it, and there's a lot of audience for that still, so that that's pretty cool. And that leads into my question about people just discovering the scene. It's a little easier to get info now, but what was the alternative music scene in Tijuana like during the 80s and the 90s? When I started playing, there were a few bands that, to me, seemed like they were doing very interesting and new stuff. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we were so close to San Diego and you had so much access to to all of these other bands, from not not only from the U.S., but like from the U.K. and, you know, all over the place. So people, it was such a common thing to just kind of go and watch good, interesting bands. And I think that really helped the musicians and, and TJ yeah. kind of come up with different sounds and experiment a little bit more. And since we're so far away from Mexico City, it just kind of... It, it, there, there was not a lot of communication between the bands in Mexico City and the bands in TJ. So we kind of related more, you know, to people in bands in San Diego or, you know, or TJ and, and Mexicali and, like, you know, the cities close to TJ. So it, it was very interesting, you know. Some bands were doing stuff like uh, Dick Can Dance. Or, and then there were other people experimenting more, like, with funk and still, like, a, some bands doing heavy metal. So there were people doing all kinds of stuff. It just seemed like a really nice, tight community of musicians kind of supporting each other. So that was very cool. Was it easy to put on shows back then, or were there even promoters helping that segment of the scene? No, it, the, the interesting thing about Tijuana, that even though it has so many influences by, like, like I said, musicians have so many influences by different bands and everything, it's still kind of feels like a small town. At least it did when I, when I was living there. So we pretty much knew everybody. We knew the owners of venues, and we knew the people that ran the radio station. So it was 
fairly easy for us to kind of just get in touch with the, the owner of a certain venue and say, we want to do the show. They'll say, okay, I'll give you this percentage. And then we'd be in charge of getting, like, uh, security and police and, you know, the ambulance for whatever happens. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. even getting, you know, being in charge of, like, getting the alcohol or beers or whatever. You know, we were in charge of a lot of things. Now, who were your uh, musical influences growing up? Growing up, I think it was, The Clash was one of the bigger ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they... they when I think about them still, they just they just seem like the perfect band in a way where they were talking about all of these things that we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, political issues and social issues. Uh, but musically, the songs by themselves kind of work very well. They're almost kind of pop in a way, but um, they have these great mix mixes of um, different rhythms and beats and, uh, you know, and, and genres, and I think that they were exploring and experimenting a lot. Now, many fans were introduced to you performing alongside Julieta Venegas. How did your friendship become a working relationship after Tijuana No? Because I know she performed at Tijuana No for a while. Well, Julieta, she, she was playing with, uh, with a band, um, when she was young, when she was in high school, I just started high school, and she was in the last year of high school. And uh, she was playing in a band, so I started going to see the band, and we just became really good friends. And then I started with Tijuana No, and after like a year or so, her band broke up. Mm-hmm. And so, because she was friends with the guys in Tijuana No, we said, oh, why don't you come and play with us? So she played for a little while with us. And then she went to Mexico City after a while. And, you know, one day, I was in TJ, and she called me and said, you know, I'm going to go play in L.A., and I don't have, my keyboard player doesn't have a visa. Could you do it? And I was like, all right. So I learned the songs. I came here and, and played with her. And then we just had so much fun. And she was like, oh, do you want to stay? And I was like, sure. So, yeah, so we started playing like that. And, um, you know, but she wasn't playing that, she wasn't that popular. So there were shows, but there weren't that many shows. But after a while, when she recorded the third one and she started getting famous, that's when I decided to move to Mexico City because everybody was based down there. So I moved there to play with her, and I ended up playing with her for till 2008. I think, yeah. yeah. So you really experienced that rise into the the Latin world and even to the crossover world, you know, with a lot with her, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. When did you decide it was time to leave and, and go out on your own? I think probably um, a little bit over a year before I, I left her band. With Julieta, it was a lot of fun, but it was also her music, so there was really not much of a creative part that I had. You know, I, I just kind of played whatever was recorded and kind of added a few things or arranged it a little bit differently. With Tijuana No, I was very involved in the writing of the songs, and I just felt like all of a sudden I was this musician that was just playing someone else's music. And as much as that was fun for me, I, I kind of was wanting to go back to writing. So I just started writing a little bit while I was still playing with her, and, and all of a sudden I got, kind of started feeling better about myself. And mm-hmm. and some people that I would show the music to were kind of like, oh, that's, that's kind of cool. I think it changed when I, when I released an EP, uh, I think it was in 2000. Is it the one that's on iTunes? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. That's, I, I got invited to do Morning Becomes Eclectic and just stuff like that, and I was like, oh, all right. I was questioning whether I should continue with her. And, and the thing is that with her, it was also a very good job, you know, mm-hmm. because it was something that was fun, but I also got paid for it, you know, fairly well. So the idea of leaving that and starting my own thing and not knowing what's going to happen was kind of scary at first, but I think I did the right thing. What do you have on the horizon? I know you're doing some recording because I've seen little videos of you in the studio or little bits and pieces of you playing live here and there and trying Mm -hmm. to kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together (laughs) as to what's going on. I started working on the record in the beginning of this year, 2009. 
I thought I had the whole record ready, like around May, I think it was, and I kept saying, oh, yeah, the record's going to be out in the summer of 2009, and it never happened, and I think I realized that it, I was kind of rushing to put it out, and when, when I stopped and kind of looked at it, I realized that I wasn't 100% happy with it, so I decided to go back and redo most of it. I'm so happy that I did it because now I'm confident that this is what I want to put out. But in that process, it didn't make sense to put it out by the end of 2009 because the timing wasn't right. So we decided we're putting it out in March of 2010. In the meantime, I'm still working on details. You know, some of the songs need to be mixed again. Yeah. It needs to be mastered again. So there's a lot of things that need to be done, but it's definitely coming out in 2010, hopefully in March. So that's what I've been working on. We'll be back with more Ceci Bastida in just a few minutes. But right now, let's check out a track off of Ceci's 2007 EP, Front BC, available online at iTunes and at Amazon.com MP3. This is Vas Patras here on Bakotunes Podcast, brought to you by Bakotopia.com.
Latin alternative music, it had a swell of, of potential crossover popularity in the mid-90s. I remember like when Matador came out by the Cadillacs, I mean, it was everywhere. And, and it was like this Latin music boom was coming. And you had Ricky Martin and over here doing the pop stuff, but you had the rock and Espanol. And then it started kind of rolling off everybody's lips. And <laughs> some of the bands for that were around for a long time, like Maldita, you know, you, you started seeing them a little bit more. And it was almost like they were ready to cross over. But then it just peaked and it went back to being this kind of niche sound for like cool college kids. And mm -hmm. what do you see the sound in that whole genre heading in terms of its place in popular music? I, I don't know exactly what's going on. I, I can tell you now my, my experience now living in this country is very different than when I was living in Mexico. And right now, for example, even putting out my album, there are labels, you know, indie labels that have heard it and they're like, oh, you know, that is, I like it a lot. I just don't know what to do with the, with someone who sings in Spanish. So I think the language is still an issue here, yeah. even though, you know, there's so many Latinos here. A lot of these people don't see that there's this whole gigantic world of people who could be into the music that a lot of bands are doing. And they don't even necessarily have to speak Spanish no. or be proficient in it. The music's good. I mean, it really does reach out to you. That's also what I say. It's like When we were growing up, I, I didn't speak English till later on in life. And to me, you know, I listened to stuff in English all of my life, and I knew a lot of people who didn't speak any English, and, you know, they listened to everything, and it wasn't an issue. You know, you would kind of, like, try to sing along and, and invent words or whatever, but for some reason, it's different here. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people need for it to be in English, otherwise they'll dismiss it. And I also think there's something about Spanish that is not uh, particularly attractive to a lot of people. I think that if I was singing in French, for example, people would say, oh, how chic. But Spanish, I, I think it reminds people, oh, you know, all those people that live here, or, you know, oh, my gardener speaks Spanish. And, and I've heard that a lot. Like, oh, maybe I, I think my gardener might know your music. You know, that kind of, those kind of comments, which don't necessarily mean to be negative, but that's how people see it. That's a kind of the cool thing about, uh, about going to Coachella and seeing, uh, like, when Julieta played there. But, like, this past year when I went, I saw Gran Silencio. I saw Mexican Institute of Sounds at Molotov. And, I mean, the response was, was overwhelming. And it wasn't just a bunch of Mexicans there watching it. It was everybody. And, exactly. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the Anglos and a lot of the people, the, the international crowd that were there, they'd been waiting years to see these bands. And I think people don't give give people here credit either because yeah, there is this big, big population that might think like, oh, what am I going to listen to Spanish for? But you know, I, I went to Coachella also and saw Café de Cuba once, and mm -hmm. you know, it was packed, and there wasn't just all Mexicans. There were a bunch of Mexicans, but not everybody. Yeah. And you know, people, a lot of people are intrigued by it and know that there is good stuff happening, and you know, just don't have as much access to it. Absolutely. You know, to see the bands because. People don't come here as often. I mean, they do, but it's not the same. The last question, if you weren't playing music and uh, pursuing this career, what would you be doing? Um, let, me think, let me think. I think I, at one point I wanted to be a therapist. Really? Like a shrink? Yeah, n not necessarily a psychiatrist, more like a psychologist. I also study history, uh, and I was teaching a little bit, some kids in like high school and junior high. And even though I loved it, it was kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think you could have been Dr. Bastida. <laughs> I 
could have been fun. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm, I probably wouldn't be struggling as much as I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad that you're playing music because you have the track record to prove that you've got the skills, and I really appreciate you taking the time to interview. I've been wanting to interview you for a while. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Ceci Bastida for hanging out with Baco Tunes. You can find her online at www.cecibastida.com. Make sure you spell it right, C-E-C-I-B-A-S-T-I-D-A.com. And of course, at MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter, just look her up. Find more Baco Tunes episodes at our blog, www.bacotopia.com slash blogs slash Tunes. And don't forget to pick up issue 70 of Bacotopia magazine featuring Ceci and more. Find a free rack or read it online at our website, www.bacotopia.com. This is Matt Munoz. Peace. Make out